being a school principal might just be the most interrupted job on the planet. Every celebration, classroom party, and great lesson in the school, you're invited. Every difficult conversation with a parent whose child is not behaving or with a teacher who's chronically late to work, you're there too. And every emergency in the building with 500, 1,000, 2,000 people in it, it's your emergency. And on top of all that, you are responsible every day for the safety of the world's most precious asset, our children. How do they do it? We're here to find out here in the principal's office. Welcome to the Principal's Office Podcast. This is Jeff Gorski, your host from Leaders Building Leaders, where our mission is to be the difference maker in the leadership development of individuals and organizations through coaching, training, and consulting. If you'd like to hear more about what we do in North Carolina and beyond, please visit our new and improved website, www.lbleaders.com. Well, today on the Principal's Office Podcast, we have a treat our guest is Joe Carraher, who is the, the leader, the school leader at Cornerstone Charter Academy in Greensboro, North Carolina. Joe, I've known for several years as someone who has been a steadying force uh, in the charter school where he operates and has helped the school grow now almost to its full K-12 plan with over a thousand students. Using his personality and his leadership style every step of the way, which really believes in hiring good people and letting them do their work. Uh, Joe's going to tell us all about his school and about what he has done to try and be the best leader he can for his organization. Uh, it's going to be a great a great learning for you, and I hope you can share this with anybody else who would benefit from hearing how one charter school has grown from success to significance. Here he is, Joe Carraher. So Joe Carahurst, welcome to the Principal's Office podcast. I'm really glad that you're, that you're able to, to teach us today. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you giving me a little bit of time. Joe, you are the executive director of Cornerstone? I'm the director, so I don't have the executive title yet. Okay, <laughs> but you are the tip of the iceberg, the, the, the top of the organization who reports directly to the board, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, Joe, looking at Cornerstone, and you've been there for a number of years now, it's a K-12 school. Why do you feel like parents decide to bring their kids to Cornerstone rather than just sticking them on the bus and going to their normally districted school? So, we are K-12. We're K-11 right now. We're going to add our 12th grade next year, so we are expanding. And, you know, that's a, it's a really good question. It's one that we find ourselves asking ourselves a lot because that's what we want to continue to be able to sell ourselves as and we want to be responsive to that. But I say that if we're really being honest, I think there's multiple reasons people choose our school. I think to boil it down to a single one would be probably oversimplifying it and uh, make a really complicated thing seem easier than it is, which is how do you get parents to choose your school? I think some of the issues that we... Um, so not issues, but some of the things that we do particularly well here is we have fostered a really strong school community. I think in some ways you have people that would say it feels a little bit more like a church than it does an actual school. And that community is a big piece that parents want because I don't think parents are always making decisions necessarily based on the academic side of things. They're making decisions about how they feel and how their child feels in the culture and in the climate of the school. Um, we have also been very successful in making sure our school is safe, and I think that's a big thing for parents also. 
And then finally, we have a good academic program with good teachers. And I'll just say, I think you have good teachers equals a good principal and uh, bad teachers equals a bad principal. So um, everything rises and falls on the success of your teachers. So. It sure does. They're the troops on the ground. No matter how good the leadership is, you have to find a way to find the right people and provide them with the right tools to execute the plan that you've that you and the board have agreed on. Um, what is there anything about your academic program that sets you apart from other schools? Well, particularly in our area here in Greensboro, we um, use the core knowledge program, which is which does help set us apart. And you know, there's a lot of research to support that, but the basic idea is that students need to have a basic set of facts from which they need to reason from, and, and those have to be, that provides a common language for students, it becomes a common language for the culture of the school, and uh, that makes it really strong, um, makes it for a really strong academic environment, and also one that tends to support a program that runs from kindergarten to 11th grade, because the core knowledge is built around the sequence of learning. So, I think that makes us a very strong program, part because I think what you see in a lot of traditional schools is you have first grade and then you have second grade and then you have third grade and there aren't a lot of vertical conversations happening because time makes that hard to do. So having a curriculum that supports it um, really uh, supports our program, makes it a stronger program. I think we are achieving that same kind of coherence in our math through the use of the Singapore math program, which is... Uh, you know, another one that's designed around making sure that you're building from point A, you know, to point B and point C. So that, that kind of internal coherence strengthens us quite a bit. Joe, a lot of charter schools that extend into high school feel pressure not only to perform academically, but to offer extracurricular activities beyond, you know, be, to, to, not beyond, but to match up with what they compete with in the traditional public schools. What's the philosophy at Cornerstone for offering extracurricular activities? So that's a great point, and it's actually kind of heartening to hear that other schools are struggling with that same sort of identity crisis. Um, I think it's an ongoing dialogue that we're having here at our school, and our high school started three years ago, and I think from the get-go, we've been having constant conversations about what are we going to be about, what are we going to be about, um, and so I don't know that we have a simple formula for that, other than we seem to be successful in, in engaging in a lot of discussions surrounding it. So a great example is I had a parent email just this week requesting a course for the, requesting that we consider a course for the upcoming school year that might change sort of the dynamics of the high school. And so since that email has gone out, I've had a conversation with the parent, I've had a conversation with board members, I've had a conversation with my high school principal and teachers. And I think the fact that we can continue to have that conversation helps us make those decisions. Um, but I, I don't think it would be honest to say that we have some kind of governing principle other than we're willing to engage in that conversation as a community. So beyond, so you're talking about academic kind of extracurricular activities, right? Other course, no, course things like we can offer. Yeah, that was a course that would have lent itself to extracurricular activities, if that makes sense. I don't want to go into details too much with it, but, <laughs> um, but it's the same thing when we talk about extracurricular activities, too. We try to make sure that we've got a rich sports program. So a great example of that would be um, I've got a, a parent who is very interested in trying to connect us with a lacrosse program and perhaps bringing a lacrosse program to the school. And so 
you know, the way we don't have any governing policy or, or theoretical approach to say, no, we're not about lacrosse. But what we do have is a community that's willing to have that conversation about it. So we would say, all right, is this fit kind of what our picture is? Let's have a conversation about this. How much is it going to cost? I've got a finance team that'll help me with it. I've got a facilities team that'll help make sure that we can support it internally. And through those dialogues, I think we come to some kind of internal coherence with it. Yeah. So do you think that charter schools have to match the offerings of the traditional public schools to, to, to give families what they need or to be competitive? I don't think you, I don't think that charter schools should have any policies or any theoretical approach about how to do that. I think if you want to do that as a school, then that's up to you. Go ahead and and try to make that happen. If you choose not to, that's great too. I think um, as far as charters go, I think it's really important that you do have a strong community around the school because you don't have an external you know, professional community as much as you might in a district school. So if you've got a strong internal community, you're going to have the right kind of conversations to make the right decisions for your school. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a local decision, of course, what you're going to offer as a charter school to your community. And it, it and in some way, shape or form has to reflect back on, on your, your overall mission. Right. So, so right. while you are trying to balance the needs of your students, it doesn't have to match up. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be exactly what other people offer, but it does have to match what you have promised to your community. And so if you have promised, uh, <laughs> promised one experience and deliver on another, that's where the, the matchup kind of comes to a halt. Um, and I think sometimes what we, one of the conversations we're having around here is one of the things that we want to promise to our community is, is a process for how to make those decisions because I think what's coming up a lot for us as a school is things like lacrosse that we haven't made any promises for and you could argue that it will bring something to our school you could also argue that it subtracts something from our school and you have people say do we really want to be about athletics and we're saying well maybe athletics contributes to the leadership model that we have and contributes to you know better our athletics program can help with academics because it provides a structure for students. So I think what is important for us and one of the things we're trying to get at within our school culture is we want parents to understand that what we are promising them is a fair process for being able to make those decisions so we can come to some consensus on what we want here because we're going to be faced with a lot of uncertain decisions. I like that. So if the process reflects the mission of your school, then the decisions that come about out of it should do the same. That's right. And I think that people can live with the decision that doesn't necessarily go that way, go their way if they feel like that it was entered into and it was considered in a manner that was uh, that was um, that was fair and even handed. So, Joe, I know you as a leader who, like you already have during our time talking today, reflects a lot of the success of your school back on the staff, on the teachers who are doing the work. Um, but it's your responsibility of you, you know, the, you and the leadership team at your school to identify, hire and develop those classroom leaders who are, who are making direct contact with the kids. Can you talk about what your process is to ensure that you're identifying great teachers to be a part of your team? 
you know, we do a lot of the same things that, that most schools do. Our staff goes through the staff that we hire goes through an interview team um, that includes those that are going to be working directly with them. And it also includes parents and includes support staff. Then they go through a second round of interviews. It would be with me and, and whoever else that I feel like need to be in the room. And then um, traditionally, they've gone through a third interview, which has included uh, board members. And so we try to put them through a fairly rigorous interview process before we actually approve them as a hire. Um, that does seem to help us. I think if you're really asking me what makes the difference, I think it's two things. One, it's building a really good culture in the school where people want to work. And then when you start hiring the right people, start helping them be able to spread the word. So that word of mouth, like, hey, Cornerstone's a great place to work. And Mr. Carraher's a good person to work for. And you can't believe the parents and the kids are great. And then some of the recruiting takes care of itself and they enter into a culture that they acclimate to pretty quickly. So when you said, you know, you want teachers to want to adapt to the culture and understand the culture, uh, someone once told me that their, their thinking process that they enter their interviews with is, is I want, I want to know if this teacher will want to work here for 20 years, or I want to build us a culture that a teacher wants to be a part of for 20 years. Um, do you have high staff turnover? Do you, you know, is Cornerstone a place where you have a lot of staff who has been there since, you know, since the beginning? Yeah, we've, um, well, we've added a lot of staff because we've expanded. We started as a K-6. And so, um, but no, in my tenure here, we have not had very high staff turnover. Um, I think we've had one teacher retire last year. We had another teacher leave. So I think we lost maybe two teachers last year. I think the year before it was one. So we're, we're very fortunate that way. And I think it's because we have a good a community feel to the school. I think um, the other teachers do a great job of taking care of each other, which is a big part of, I think, surviving the profession of teaching is I don't care what school you teach in, it's, it's a challenge. And so having those people around you help support you and lift you up are, um, are good. And I do think that, you know, if I were to credit myself with something, it's that myself and my administrative team does a good job of really helping teachers understand that we want them to get better at what they're doing. And we're here to help them get better. And as long as you're putting that effort into your craft and trying to improve, then we're going to support you and create an environment where you can do that. And so I think that's been very, uh, it's been a focus point for me. And uh, it's been, I think, good for the teachers too, to feel that way about things. You know, Joe, my mindset has changed in the last couple of years when it comes to what makes teachers want to stay at a school, uh, because I thought it was that you looked at your great teachers and you left them alone. Uh, that you said, okay, you're doing a good job, do what you got to do, keep going, keep doing good work, and you left them kind of be. And what I've come to believe recently is that that's not what makes people want to stay. It's, it's that you're helping them grow. It's that you're providing them with new opportunities to shine and listening to them when they say, hey, I'd like to try this, and then supporting them as they, as they kind of work that idea into, into action. Uh, what strategies or, or what do you think are the key things that you and your staff do to make sure that your teachers, uh, you know, you're supporting your teachers to grow? So I, I feel like that there's, to keep teachers engaged in the work, there's really kind of three 
categories they sort of fall into for me. The first one are those high achievers. Those are the ones that are really motivated um, on their own. I think that's, you know, a relatively small percentage of any kind of teaching staff. And those are the ones that you really want to engage in conversations about their personal goals. Like, what do you really want to do? Like, what is it that interests you? What's that next move for you? And how can we help support you do that? support you in doing that. Then there's that middle group of teachers that I think are the, the biggest swath of teachers in most schools, which are the ones that want to do a good job, not really sure exactly how to get there all the time. And you've got to sort of negotiate with them what their goals are. So their goals are going to come partly from where their heart is and then partly from the conversations that you have with them. And they may be a little bit more directed for some, a little bit less directed, but it's not something that's wholly their own because uh, that's just not where their head is with it. And then I think there's a third group of teachers that, that I think quite honestly we all have and we've all seen, which is I'm not sure how passionate they are about the work that they do. And it's really hard to engage a teacher in that point in any conversation for getting better. So the first step for me is trying to understand the person that you have in front of you and kind of where they are with that process and what you believe about uh, how they believe, how they think about the profession. And then once you kind of know that, you engage in it very differently. So I have a handful of teachers here that I coach personally. And I used to think as a, one of the ways that I've changed is that as I came in as a director, one of my jobs was to just deal with like the really low performing teachers. Mm-hmm. But I felt like I was wasting a lot of time with that. And so this year, one of the things that I've done is taken on uh, about three or four of our real high performing teachers and just gone into a like sort of a coaching model with them and left some of our lower performing teachers for some of my other administrative staff to uh, to work through. We kind of share that burden a little more than what I have in the past. So um, and I, that's been energizing for me because that's a lot more fun than, than the opposite. So. <laughs> I don't know if I answered the question there at all, but I certainly talked for a long time. No, you, you absolutely did. I'm, I'm curious as a follow-up. So how do you identify teachers into those three buckets? Well, there's a formula. And so you've got to crunch a lot of numbers. And then once you do that, then you just make a gut, you make a gut guess on it. Uh, I don't think there's any formula. You just, way, but then you yeah. know, you've been around education long enough that you know it when you see it. Yeah. And certainly results dictate some of that. I mean, I've never really had a high performing teacher that doesn't produce results like, you know, on any kind of accountability measure. And so I don't know that that's always, you know, the best way to, to, to do it with like sort of one indicator. But I think if you're looking at a consistent trend of results over time, you've got a pretty good teacher that's self motivated. I think a lot of it comes from just being able to have conversations with teachers and just seeing what do they talk about when they talk with me? Are they talking about their craft? Are they talking about the kids? Are they talking about what they want to do? Or are they having conversations about, you know, whether the parents are, what the parents are doing or whether Johnny, you know, even wants to come to school or so a lot of it, I think for me just comes from when I sit down and talk with them, what do they talk about? And, uh, there's a, I don't know where I heard this or where I saw this, so I'm not taking credit for it at all, but uh, there was a, somewhere someone said that teachers have to teach like it's 100% their responsibility that the kids learn and the kids have to learn like it's 100% their responsibility to learn it. And uh, 
you know, and it's that kind of tension that pulls a class forward. And I think when you have conversations with teachers that embrace their side of it and say, it's 100% my responsibility, then you probably have a pretty highly motivated teacher. Is your mindset the same in evaluating people on your leadership team, Joe? How did you identify those people? Because as your school grows, I'm, I'm guessing that you looked at, you looked at people from within to add to your leadership team. Yeah, I think the mindset is very much the same. It's about who wants to get better at what they're doing. And, but I think one of the things that's important for me and I'm building my leadership team is to make sure that as a team that we reflect the culture that we want amongst our teachers too. So I'm very blessed here to have, first off, a very talented kind of leadership team. But then I've also got a group of people that work really well with each other. And I think when teachers see that, then they have a model for how to communicate and how to talk and how to get along. And uh, they see coherence and consistency. Not that, you know, we're great with any of those things, but I think we're, we do a good job. And that makes it easier for teachers to know what they need to be doing on any given day and, and then also to understand how to react. So, um, you know, I'm really looking at those kind of two things. Do you want to get better at what you're doing? Are you in a position where you are excited about doing the work here? The conversations we have are about the work and, um, and about how do we improve? And then the second part of that is just, will you get along with us? Like, can you sit in a room with us and, and argue and not take offense? Can you sit in a room with us and laugh at the same things? Can you, uh, you know, can you sit in a room with us at all? <laughs> Those kind of things. So in your story, Joe, how, what was it like, or how did the hook get set into you to get out of the classroom and into leadership? Um, gosh, that was, feels a long time ago now, like 10 years. Um, I think you just, there's always a part of me that wants to work with the adults in the building in some way too. I know, I think the, the correct response to that is like, it's about the children. Um, and it is ultimately about the kids, but I think there's also just a, a desire that I have to work with the adults in the building and, and getting better at what they do. And, uh, it's not that I don't want the kids to, to get better, but I think they benefit from better teachers and it's just so easy when you walk around and look, I mean, you can go in any school anywhere and just see like how miserable it is for a child to go into a class with a teacher that just doesn't know what they're doing. And uh, so I think um, just having a passion for, for working with adults to get better at what they're doing and coaching them. And uh, that was one of the things that, that drove me into it too. Sure. Yeah. It's a big change. And I think that's something that a lot of teachers who transition into leadership are not prepared for. They don't realize that the amount of time that they're going to spend with kids is going to nosedive. Uh, and if you got into education because you liked working with kids, that uh, that's a major mindset shift that has to, that has to take place to move into leadership. Yeah. Isn't that like, what do they call that? The Peter principle or something like you get, promoted to a position where you don't have that skill set anymore like the skill set that served you well at one level made you extremely successful so they promote you to another level yeah. that requires a completely different set of skills that you may not have and uh i think that's what it is like when you go into administration it is no longer about it really isn't necessarily about working with kids it is it's about keeping the kids in mind and understanding how what you do impacts kids but it's really about how do you work with adults to make that happen yeah. and uh uh, you know, and I think um, 
having you, that requires a different set of skills and the male come in and run through a five point lesson plan and make sure that kids are achieving. Is there a person, Joe, that you call your mentor in your educational professional journey or a role model that you had? And if so, what, what do they teach you or, or how does it affect your leadership now? Uh, I wouldn't say that there's one person. I'd say that I've learned um, a little bit from everybody. And I would probably say that's one of the reasons I am where I am is because I was able to learn from the people around me. and I was blessed to have good people around me. So, you know, I could check off everybody who I worked for and talk about what I pulled from them with it. Um, and so, you know, I think, uh, yeah, just think I've been really, really lucky. And, uh, in, I think probably one of the overall things that I learned is that like in everybody that I worked with, they were very interested in helping me advance. And there wasn't anybody that really was interested in standing in my way or making that more difficult. And so I've kind of tried to keep that in my mind too, that as you work with teachers and other people in the building that, you know, if there's something they want to do, then you got to really support that and they'll feel um, very connected to you. So. Yeah, that's a that's a, a level five leadership skill right there, as we talk about in the John Maxwell stuff that we that we do. Right. right. Um, are there any? How about this this angle at then, Joe? Are there any books that you reference as as you know a, a philosophical base of your educational style, or anything that you recommend that your leadership team reads in order to to learn about your philosophy? Oh, geez. Um, so I'm a I'm a uh, I'm an avid reader, so there's a lot that I've read that I've given them that I feel like is important. Uh, this past summer, I made my leadership team and uh, and all my my front office staff, all the support people. One of the things I made them read was How to Win Friends and Influence People. Oh yeah, and it's a uh, it's like the 1939 like Dale Carnegie book, and uh, you know, and parts of it are hokey, but a lot of it is really really good about how you just engage people in things and how do you listen to people first and meet them where they are and, and learn to talk to them. And, uh, I think that's one that like I read that has been like really a lasting influence on me. Like, you know, you read all these academic books, like, and I do that, but, uh, but that's one that I think really did drive a, uh, it was really pretty influential and something that I give people to read all the time. Yeah. The lesson from that book that I took away is that you, if you ask people questions and you are interested, then you yourself become interesting, right? That, that, that's, that's exactly right. It, I think so why we start asking you questions. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. And uh, there is a quote in there somewhere too about how, you know, you need to respect people not based on what your, um, what your values are, but on how well they um, live up to their own values. And uh, I think that's one thing I try to, to take in mind too that you know when you got a building like I do with 80 staff members and a thousand kids you know you can't expect to everybody to hold the same uphold the same values but if you see them upholding their own and you respect those then that's a good place to be too wow I never thought of it that way um so so as you're you said you're an avid reader um so coming across new content and new ideas and and new strategies in the execution of a school is there anything that has changed uh, or can you think of anything that has changed about your belief or your philosophy in education in the last year or two? In the last year or two, 
Yeah. So I think one of the things that I've started reading, I figure now that I've been in administration for about 10 years that I need to start reading some books about leadership. And uh, so I've been reading, you know, a fair amount about uh, leadership. And one of the things I talk about pretty consistently across a lot of that literature is the ability of a leader to be vulnerable and to be humble and how important that is for the people who work for you to be able to see that. And, um, you know, I, I, that's one thing that probably has shifted in me probably within the last year, particularly just, you know, some personal life events and, and some struggles that I've had and understanding, you know, gosh, I know other people in this building have gone through the same thing and the burden that I carry with it and how much it impacts me, you know, how, how considerate have I been of people in the building who may be having a burden of their own. Mm-hmm. And some of the way that you can be considered, I think, is just by acknowledging your own struggles and to free them up to be able to acknowledge their own and then then to have more honest dialogue about how to get better. And so I, th- I think that's one thing I've tried to do. And it's hard, I think, as a leader, because you really are expected to have the answers and they, people do want you to be, you know, the long arm of the, the law. Sometimes they do want you to be firm and clear. And, you know, sometimes they don't realize that you're just making it up as you go along too, because just so few of these answers are clear. So all you're doing is pretending to like really have a clear idea of it. And uh, so I think the ability to be a little bit more vulnerable and uh, a little bit more humble in the face of decision making and things have been uh, has been a big change for me. Right. Um, Joe, you, while you're talking, you made me think about how transient the school leadership job really is um, that uh, unfortunately over the last five years, you know, Almost, uh, well, I think we figured out that about half of the charter schools in North Carolina have changed their leadership. Um, you know, charter school leaders get burnt out. They leave for one reason or another. And, and you now have stayed in your position for a number of, of years. What do you think is the key to, to charter school leader longevity, staying in the same place for a long time? Um, just being... Uh, being dumb enough to not quit. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I don't really know. I, I think that, again, it's like looking for a, a single bullet theory when really it's, there's probably a lot of factors that come into play with that. Um, you know, I think it's, uh, I, I certainly understand the desire to, to kind of leave the position and to leave the post, you know, because it, it's taxing. And, uh, you know, so I think sometimes just hanging in is, um, I, I don't really know, Jeff, I wish I'm stumbling around for a good answer. Like, cause I see somebody who, uh, who, who might quit being a principal or director or whatever. And I, I completely understand. And like, why don't you do that? And I was like, well, I don't know. I guess I just kind of hang in there. And, uh, yeah. you gotta, yeah, yeah. I, I think part of it is having good people kind of in the core group you know, around you, I've got great administrators here. I have a good support staff and I think they're, they are willing to help when they feel like I'm just things are starting to, when they can't see me at my desk behind the stacks of paper, I think when they realize that they can only see the top of my head, they know they need to do something. And I can count any number of times where my administrative team will come in and say, okay, what can I do for you? And that's, a, I think, a big part of being able to remain in your position. 
Yeah, it's it's a every charter school leader we talk to has has that conflict where it's hard work, it's texting work, it's long hours, it's it's exhausting. And uh, anybody who tells you that they if they haven't had that feeling go through their mind or anything, uh, probably isn't being vulnerable like you've learned to be in the last uh, yeah in the last little while. Um, Absolutely. Well, Joe, let's let's close on this question uh, because I, I really appreciate your time and everything you've taught us today. Uh, thinking back, you've been a, a leader now for ten years, uh, a school leader now for ten years, and you've been in your school for what four now? Uh, I'm in my third or yeah, third year. Yeah, principal's age in years, so it's like you got to take that three and multiply it by like eleven or something. <laughs> With everything that you've learned from uh, from your mentor, from the books you've read, and from the people around you, if you could go back and give yourself advice as in your first year going back into being a, a school leader, what would you tell yourself? So I would I would probably go back when I was a assistant principal. I would spend more time trying to pull things from the best teachers than I did. I think I did a pretty good job of it, but I don't know that I really was like aware that that's what I was doing. I think I got kind of used to doing it because I liked it. I was interested in learning, but I think I would like to be a lot more intentional about that and find some way to kind of gather that information, glean it, categorize it, figure out how to, to spread that out more than what I did. Fantastic. Fantastic stuff, Joe. Thank you so much for, for making the time sure. the Principal's Office podcast. This was great. Jeff here. Thank you so much for listening today to the Principal's Office Podcast, and thank you to Joe and everyone at at Cornerstone Charter Academy for pitching in to help us send this kind of information, this kind of content out to the world. It's our pleasure to, to bring support to the charter school world in North Carolina and beyond, and we hope that you can take this and share it with anyone who might benefit from listening to Joe's message. Uh, if you'd like to hear anything else about what we do here at Leaders Building Leaders, please visit our website, lbleaders.com, or send me an email. It's Jeff, that's G-E-O-F-F, at leaders-building-leaders.com. I hope to bring you more of the Principal's Office podcast very soon. Thanks for listening.